who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. We thank you, Father, that you are such a great God. You have taught us understanding, and you are in the process of teaching us knowledge. But no one ever taught you, because you have all wisdom, you have all truth, you are completely self-sufficient. We, we often look at things on this earth and we inflate them and make them larger than they are. And sometimes it seems that they have more power than they actually do. And many of the leaders of the world are meeting right now, making great plans, talking about the future. But they are doing what you direct them to do. Scriptures tell us that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. So, Lord, if they are discussing a one-world currency, it's because you are directing them to discuss a one-world currency. For we can read the scriptures and see that at a point, that's part of your plan. It concerns us. It alarms us to see it out on the table like this. But really, in actuality, it shouldn't. Because you are just simply working your plan, and they are just simply pawns on your chessboard, and you are putting them where you want them to be, You've raised them up, and when you're done with them, you set them down. It's so good to read your word. It's so good to be reminded of what is true. It gives us perspective. It gives us clarity. It gives us safety. It gives us assurance that this world is not spinning out of control. You are simply working all things according to your plan. How grateful we are to know you. This is not because of what we have done or because we sought you. It's because you sought us out. We can take no glory in it. We can take no credit for it. We can only express gratitude that you have redeemed us and brought us into your family. We thank you, Lord, that we really have no basis from which to live in fear because of who you are and because of what you have promised. As we continue to walk with you, we discover more and more of your faithfulness. You've never broken a promise to us. And for those of us that are facing immediate difficulties that stretch us and frighten us and deeply concern us, may we look back over our lives and see what you have done for us and how faithful you have been. And it just makes no sense that you would stop now being faithful to us. Great is your faithfulness.
It's massive. It's consistent. It's constant. It can never be stopped. Now, we are not always faithful to you, but out of your mercy and out of your grace, you continue to be faithful to us. So this is not based on us. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on what we do. But as fathers, earthly fathers, look to their sons to see a response, a good response, a good attitude, an obedient response. So you look for that in our lives as well. And just as when we see our sons strain from that, we discipline them, so you discipline us, but it's for our good. What a great father you are. Different guys are here tonight with different needs. We, we couldn't list all the needs, but you know all the needs, and you know all the circumstances and all the surrounding circumstances and the context. You know it all. So we simply put ourselves in your care. We simply ask that your will will be done, because your will is always the best. Help us to submit to what you've put in front of us in terms of our responsibility. Help us not to be hard-hearted or stiff-necked. Help us to be pliable to your spirit and to listen and then to obey. It's the safest place in all the world. May the Spirit of God open our eyes. And may he teach us, and may he find open hearts as we look into your word tonight. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me that there has been somewhat of a shift in, in the concerns that are on the heart of, uh, of, of, of men and women. And when I say there's been a shift, uh, there, there has been an obvious concern and there has been a, uh, a heightened sense of anxiety over the last year or so obviously about the economic situation and what's going on, and we have seen things uh, deteriorate. Uh, I read this week in Forbes that basically in the last year, year and a half, the wealth of the world has been cut in half. So we've been watching this, and we've all been affected by it. But there seems to have been a little bit of a shift in the area of our concern. At least I picked this up in my conversations with guys and emails I've gotten and letters I've gotten, it, it seems in, in recent months uh, there is still that economic concern, but now there is a concern for the direction of the nation and, and where we are going, or rather where we are not going. And are we headed in a direction that makes any sense? Uh, the Bible says if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And there is a lot of concern because we see foundations being kicked out that alarm us because if those foundations are removed, there are consequences to that, and, and we are concerned. It, it was Hegel who said that history teaches us that men never learn from history. So this week I've been reading history, and I've been reading Paul Johnson's book, again, called Modern Times, the World from the 20s to the 90s the 1920s to the 1990s. And I'll just jump in where he is discussing FDR and his length and, uh, of, of uh, leadership in this country. And I have really tried to cut this down. But he ends a chapter with these words. The, the truth is that Roosevelt appeared to be in tune with the 30s spirit, which had repudiated the virtues of capitalist enterprise and embraced those of collectivism or socialism. The heroes of the 1920s had 
been businessmen, the sort of titans led by Thomas Edison, who had endorsed Harding and Coolidge on their front porches. The 1929 crash and its aftermath weakened faith in this pantheon. By 1931, Felix Frankfurter was writing to Bruce Blyven, who was editor of the New Republic, and he wrote these words, Nothing, I believe, sustains the present system more than the pervasive worship of success. He's talking about in business. And the touching faith we have in financial and business messiahs. I believe it to be profoundly important to undermine that belief, undermine confidence in their greatness, and you have gone a long way towards removing some basic obstructions to the exploration of economic and social problems. Are you getting his drift? By 1932, this undermining process was largely complete, helped by revelations that J.P. Morgan, for instance, had paid no income tax for the three previous years, and that Andrew Mellon had been coached by an expert from his own Treasury Department in the art of tax avoidance. Then you skip a few paragraphs, and he parallels this loss of faith in capitalism and in the business enterprise with loss of faith in American business leaders coincided with a sudden and overwhelming discovery that the Soviet Union existed and that it offered an astonishing and highly relevant alternative to America's agony. Stuart Chase's A New Deal ended with the question, why should the Russians have all the fun of remaking a world? And basically what he explains is that uh, at the end of the 30s, the, the elite of America, the academic intelligentsia, became enamored with what was going on in the Soviet Union and felt like the answers to our problems were to be found in what Stalin was doing in the Soviet Union. This is all happening in the 30s. When Amtorg, the Soviet trading agency, advertised for 6,000 skilled workers, more than 100,000 Americans applied. The comedian Will Rogers said, those rascals in Russia, along with their cuckoo stuff, have got some mighty good ideas. Just think of everybody in a country going to work. A lot of them were working in prisoner camps. But that wasn't emphasized. One scholar said, all roads in our day lead to Moscow. And the scholar Strachey echoed him when he said, to travel from the capitalist world into Soviet territory is to pass from death into birth. And then Johnson says, we must now explore the gruesome and unconscious irony of these remarks. And then you turn the page to chapter 8, which is entitled, The Devils. And I'll read a paragraph to you. At the very moment the American intelligentsia turned to totalitarian in Europe for spiritual sustenance and guidance in orderly planning, it was in fact embarking on two decades of unprecedented ferocity and desolation, moral relativism in monstrous incarnation. On the 21st of December, 1929, Stalin had celebrated his 50th birthday as absolute master of an, of an autocracy for which, in concentrated savagery, no parallel in history could be found. Now, this is where the intelligentsia is looking for hope, where, no, where concentrated savagery, no parallel in history could be found. A few weeks earlier, while the New York Stock Exchange was collapsing, Stalin had given orders for the fourth collectivization of the Russian peasants, an operation involving far greater material loss than anything within the scope of Wall Street, and a human slaughter on a scale. No earlier tyranny had possessed the physical means, let alone the wish to bring about. They used to be thinking that it was 5 to 10 million that were killed. I've read recently where estimates are now up to 20 to 30 to 40 million that Stalin killed in Russia. By the time John Strachey wrote of fleeing capitalistic death to find Soviet birth, this gruesome feat of social engineering had been accomplished. Johnson says five million peasants were dead, twice as many as in forced labor camps. By that time, too, Stalin had acquired a pupil, an admirer and rival in the shape of Hitler, controlling a similar autocracy and planning human sacrifices to ideology on an even ampler scale. 
For Americans, it was a case then of moving from one evil to another. And in actuality, Johnson writes, the devils had taken over. It was not a, it was not a good time. It was not a good time. And why are so many of us so concerned? I was talking with someone before we started, and they were mentioning the fact they had been reading David Jeremiah's book, his new book on prophecy, which is an excellent book. Uh, what in the world, uh, what on earth is going to happen? And as he's reading this book, he's a little bit concerned because he sees uh, the headlines actually trumpeting what Jeremiah is reading from the Scripture. It's, it's, we're just moving right down the prophetic road, aren't we? Yes, we are. Now, do we need to be fearful? No, because God is in charge of this, because this is part of God's plan. He told us in advance this was going to happen. Is it all going to happen tonight? Probably not. But we're definitely, we're making progress. Things are speeding up. And so as a result, we look at our situation and we look around, and not only are we concerned about what's happened economically, we're concerned about where we are as a nation and the direction we're headed and all this kind of stuff. And These are not the best of times. I had someone ask me recently, and I appreciated their comments, they basically were saying, would it be possible for you to be a little more positive? <laughs> and I said, well, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I don't feel like I'm uh, not positive. But at the same time, I, I am positive, uh, and I have a great hope, but at the same time, I'm looking at reality. You have to look at reality. Uh, Peter Drucker said, when the facts are clear, the decision jumps out at you. Well, you can't ignore reality. You can't act like stuff isn't happening and things aren't changing and we aren't in transition. And you can't, now, you can't ignore that if you'd like. It's probably not the wisest way to live. You just look it straight in the face and then look at Christ and you're fine. Because he's simply working the plan. There's plenty of bad news. In the section that we're looking at in 2 Timothy, in this section tonight, uh, oh, by the way, Paul is in a situation where people would look at him and say, uh, you got any good news? Because just to look at his situation, it appears that it's all bad news. But in the midst of his situation, and, and by the way, Johnson said the devils had taken over. Well, there was a great humanitarian in charge of the Roman Empire at this time by the name of Nero. He was a devil, an absolute devil, an insane devil, who basically had decided he was going to take the criticism that had been leveled at him and shift it to the Christians. And an unbelievable persecution had taken place upon the Christians, including Paul. These were the circumstances that Paul is facing. If you've been with us in our study, you know that in 2 Timothy, this is Paul's last letter. It's his last will and testament. Paul is getting ready to die. Death could come at 2 o'clock. It might come next week. It might come in two weeks. But it's very clear that Paul knows that he is at the end of the race. He makes that statement. He doesn't say, I'm running the race. He says, I've run the race. He says, my departure is imminent. He knows it. He knows it. But in the midst of all this, so you can look at Paul's situation, say the guy's in the prison and the dungeon in Rome, and my gosh, you know, and you know, you got him holed up, and he's there going to cut off his head and all this, and it's just, oh, woe is me. You, know, you don't get that from Paul. What you get from Paul, he's writing to Timothy, and he's, he's clear, he's, uh, he's steady, he's stable, he's not depressed, he's not overwhelmed, he's not in despair, not at all. As he's staring de death in the face, th this guy is not worried about death. He's not scared of it. He's not frightened of it. Uh, he's not losing sleep at night over the fact that he might die the next day. It's really not an issue for him. 
In fact, before he had made the statement that really it, it, it would be better for him to depart. He'd felt this way for a long time. This guy wasn't afraid of dying. Are you? Your, your view of death says a lot about your spiritual condition and your belief in the truth of God's word and what it says about death. That's a fact. In this section that we're looking at tonight, and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you would. We'll pick it up in verse 8. In, in the midst of all this bad news, you know, Nero's on the throne, Christians are being persecuted, this is going on, you know, there's not a lot of free speech. Um, there, the Christians aren't making appeals to the Supreme Court. There is no Supreme Court. The Christians are being set in pitch and then tied to lamppost and being lit as human torches to light the avenues of Rome. That's what's happening. It, it's, it's bad news for Christians. But in, just to look at it, but in the midst of this, Paul keeps hammering away at the good news. The good news. The good news. He keeps talking about the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. And, and in our day, where we are concerned, and some of us are looking back at history and reading what happened in the 30s and all this, and we see this, sort of see things coming back again. And you know, it's interesting because if you are a student of history, you know that history repeats itself, but people don't learn the lessons. But if you're in tune to that, you start putting this together and this, and you go, oh my gosh, here we go. And yeah, you're right, here we go. You're, you're astute, you're discerning. But in the midst of all that, there is the gospel. There, there is plenty of good news. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be depressed. We don't have to be down. We just have to know our Bibles, and we have to live off the truth of God. It makes sense to me in this world to begin your day with the Word of God. It, it, it just makes sense to me. I learned that from my dad. And um, I try to do that every morning, and I did it this morning. And, and this morning, I had to kind of filter out some stuff that I had been reading, and I had to kind of cleanse it out, and I just had to go back and read truth and remind myself of what's going on. In, in 2 Timothy, he's given real clear instructions here to this young man to whom he's passing the baton. And he says in verse 8, he says, Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. I think it's interesting Paul would say that I'm his prisoner. He doesn't say I'm Nero's prisoner. He doesn't say I'm the prisoner of the Roman Empire. He says I am his prisoner because he is in charge of my life. I am here in this situation by his appointment, and by his design. It is his will for me at this point in my life that I be in prison. And it is his will that my life is coming to an end. We're always trying to insulate ourselves. Uh, I mean, as I look around at, at what I'm hearing and seeing constantly, um, what I'm seeing is a, is a false counterfeit religion that's being pitched. I'm seeing a false gospel being pitched. Are you worried about the future? Well, then you put your trust in government. Are you worried about your car payment? Oh, we'll make your car payment. We don't have any money, but we'll make your car payment. Are you worried about your warranty, that extended warranty you paid for? Oh, well, now the government, we're going to guarantee that. Now, that makes me nervous. That doesn't encourage me at all. You know, the fact of the matter, all this stuff that is being offered to us is, um, is salvation. We're, we, we are being offered a, a plan that saves us 
from the difficulties of life, that saves us from the hardships, that saves us from the unforeseen mishaps of life. You lose your job, we'll extend your unemployment benefits. This happens to you, we'll, have, we'll be your health care provider. This happens, we'll, we'll take, it's, it's government, it's a false gospel. God is your provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. God is your social security. Did you not know that? And by the way, if you're 40 and you're thinking one day you're going to get social security, (laughs) it's broken. The money's not there. It's not funded. It's a joke. I just want to once again encourage you. But see, they, they say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. You're doing nothing. It's a sham. It's a crock. God is my social security. God is my health care provider. Read Isaiah 46. Hey, I bore... I, I, and let's read it again. I've read it in here ten times. Well, let's read it again. And you might want to read it in the morning when you get up. Isaiah 46.3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. And all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Do you know that God is the one who carries us? He said in Deuteronomy 1, like a little boy is carried by his father, so I have carried you. I keep going back. This is a great passage for these times. Even to your old age, I will be the same. You see, God has already funded Social Security for you. And no one has tapped into it. It's there. It's there. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Has he been faithful for you up until this point? Well, when you get old and gray and you can't chew and you can't see and you can't hear and you can't taste, and won't that be fun? isn't that where life is going sure it is we all want to just keel over like Bing Crosby you know Bing Crosby died in his late 70s you know how Bing Crosby died he's playing around the golf on some beautiful golf course with some buddies in Spain he shot like a 79 or an 80 they're walking off the course and he says guys that was a great round of golf <laughs> and the sucker keeled over what a way to go no tubes No breathing machine. Just a nice round of golf. And then you check out. But but the question is, where do you go when you check out? See, a lot of us, we'd like to die that way. And some of us will. But for many of us, we're not going to die that way. It's going to be slow. It's going to be hard. We're going to deteriorate. Uh, as I told you what Franklin Graham said about his father, Billy. He said, my dad's always been prepared to die. He just wasn't prepared for old age. It's hard for a man like Billy Graham to be dealing with the issues he's dealing with right now. He's still in that body, but the body's broken down. He needs some shocks and struts, doesn't he? But it's, it's just breaking down, you see? But God is faithful even there. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your grain years, I will bear you. And I have done it. And I will carry you. And I will bear you. And I will deliver you. That is social security. That's your only social security. He's your health care provider. He is everything they are saying they will be. And they're lying. And he's telling the truth. When I was a kid in church, we used to sing a chorus. He's he's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. That's pretty much the gospel. 
He's all you need. Back in 2 Timothy, don't be ashamed of our testimony, of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Did you catch that? Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of good news in there, a whole bunch. So let's unpack it, okay? And let me check my watch. All right, Lou, you got the time stuff going? You haven't, pulled up, you haven't held up the first one. That's really good. Okay. I want to give you five pieces of good news, and it all revolves around the gospel. All right? Number one. Are you ready for some good news? I mean, are you really? Man, I am. And, and, and it's out there. There's plenty of good news. All right, number one. The gospel is good news. That's what it means. It's, the gospel is the eongelion. It means good news. Uh, we, we, we preach the gospel. We preach the eongelion. We preach the evangel. Evangelism is the good news. The good news about what? That Christ is God and that Christ is the Savior. Uh, someone once asked Francis Schaeffer, if he had an hour on an airplane to talk to someone about Christ and share with them the plan of salvation, how would he do it if he had an hour? And Schaefer said, if I had an hour to tell someone about Christ and the good news, I would spend the first 45 to 50 minutes telling them the bad news. I think that's brilliant. Schaefer said, we are too quick to tell people the good news when they don't understand the bad news. The bad news is that you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. The whole world is caught up in sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means you can't light enough candles at Mass to get saved. That means that you can't uh, crawl on your knees up the steps of a cathedral somewhere to have God forgive you. You're a sinner. You're lost in your sin. Oh, and by the way, you have no interest in changing your condition unless he works in your life and brings you to him. We think all these people are just running around, you know, morally neutral. You give the God, oh, yeah, I'll come. Okay, sure, sure. They can't come. They won't come. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They won't come as you didn't come unless the Spirit of God first works. Jesus says no man comes unless the Father, what? Draws him. You can't come on your own. You won't come. You don't want to come. Because you're comfortable in your sin and in your mess and in your crap. That's where we all are. We don't want to be saved. We want to continue living the way that we are living. We, we want some pain medication here and there. And we want a few more bucks. But we don't want to change what's going on in our lives and in our hearts unless he comes into our lives and saves us. So Schaefer said, I'd give him the bad news. The bad news, you're lost without Christ. You are a sinner. You can never meet the requirements that God has in his justice for perfection because you're a sinner. And if you've broken the law at one point, you've broken the entire law. You are hopeless. You are doomed by your own choices and your own volition and your own hardened heart because you continue on this path away from God, you're doomed to eternity apart from Him. For 45 minutes, He'd ram it home. And then when they're just about on the verge of despair, you tell them that there's a Savior and His name is Jesus and He's God. And he created the world. But he laid aside his privileges. And he became a servant. And he came to this earth. And he lived a sinless 
life. He was born of a virgin. He has no sin nature. He has no physical father. Uh, She was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. He does not have a sin nature like you have and like I have. He was perfect, lived a sinless life, was unjustly accused, was beaten beyond recognition, went to the cross, died for my sin, died for your sin, as a payment for our sin. He died. He died. And three days later, they went to the tomb, and he was gone. And then he started appearing to them. And they just couldn't believe it. It was the greatest greatest thing in all the world. The absolute greatest thing in all the world. And they started telling one another, and they said, the Lord appeared, and Thomas said, come on. Come on, give me a break. Unless I touch his hands, feel the wounds in his side, and it wasn't too long before Jesus shows up. Hey, Thomas, come here, pal. Feel that. He appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. Isn't that amazing? And over the years, you know, that's always been attacked. Oh, he really didn't die. It was, you know, he just swooned. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, let us beat you like that. And let us hang you on a cross like that. And let us do to you what they did to him. And let's see you swoon. He didn't swoon. He died. He died. Oh, well, there was a conspiracy. I love what Colson said years ago. He says, yeah, they often say the resurrection is a conspiracy. He says, you want to talk conspiracy? He says, I know a little bit about conspiracies. He says, the problem with conspiracies is a bunch of guys get together and they say, all right, everybody, you got it? All right, we're all going to say this, right? Right. And then the first guy that they pull in and put under the lights and they start squeezing him. And they start working on his shoulder. They get a chiropractor and start working on his shoulder without pain meds. The guy's going to break. Especially if he can turn state's evidence. He can work a deal. No jail time. That's the problem with conspiracy. Somebody always breaks. Somebody always caves to get the best deal for them. And then the conspiracy is broken. You know the interesting thing with all these followers of Christ? They never broke. They didn't break. Because it was real. Because it was true. It was the good news. Well, we're going to kill you. Then kill me. They weren't afraid to die. That's great news. Number two, the gospel involves suffering. This is why I'm not on Christian television. (laughs) Oh, there are some good guys on there that will tell you the truth. But there are also, as you know, a lot of guys that teach a false gospel that there isn't suffering, it's just prosperity. Um, The gospel involves suffering. Philippians 1.29, just one verse. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. The Christian life is a life full of suffering. That's why you're suffering. You should not be surprised by that. It's to be expected. Jesus said in the world you'll have tribulation. In the world you'll have a difficult time. Uh, In his little book, John J. Murray, his book, Behind a Frowning Providence, He has a little chapter on God's designs and suffering. I'll read a couple sections to you. He says, when we set off on the Christian pathway, we do not know much about our true selves. It is even possible to enter the Christian ministry without much knowledge of the deceitfulness of one's own heart. We pray sincerely for growth in grace, for increase in faith, but the answer comes in a way that we do not expect. John Newton was one who made the painful discovery. And he quotes the words of a hymn.
that Newton wrote. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. That's suffering. Why? Because sin dwells within us. Robert Murray McChain confessed that the seed of every known sin was to be found in his heart. Uh, He goes on, Murray says, and says, What latent corruption there is within. We are like a chemical plant. It only takes a spark to set us alight. Think of the breakout of sin in the lives of so many of the saints. Abraham with his deceit. Job with his rash words. Moses with his anger. Asaph with his murmuring. Paul with his pride. Job could say, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Asaph had to say, I was foolish and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Such discoveries make us think less of ourselves and therefore lead us to think more of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the longer you walk with Christ, the more less impressed with you you are. Is that not true? If you've walked with Christ for a while and you've ever had someone, a, a, a child or a grandchild, talk to you and, and they just, I'm just so grateful for your example and for your walk with Christ. And what are you thinking? If you only knew. If you only knew how far I have to go. See, to them, it looks like, my gosh, this, this, this person's unbelievable. But see, we know, we know ourselves. We're just amazed at what's in there, still to this day. He goes on and writes, Whatever else we may have, if we do not have character, we have nothing. It is character that determines destiny. The only failure that matters in the end is the failure to build character. In ordinary life, character is formed by overcoming difficulties. The state of our society today militates against character building. Even in the church, young people are not exposed to the influences that will build character. No wonder so many remain spiritual babes. He goes on and says, The process by which God builds character is outlined in Romans 5, verses 1 through through 5. God says that we glory in tribulation. The Greek word translated tribulation comes from the verb to press. The word is used to describe the crushing of the grapes and olives. The figure suggests the heavy pressure of outward trouble or inward anguish. Tribulation produces patient endurance, the ability to stay with it and not fall apart. Hmm. Uh, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, it's, it's the Garden of the, uh, of the Press. It's the Garden of the Olive Press. And there's this big, you go there today, and there is, you'll see a stone laver. It, 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 it's about like this. There's a cylinder that comes up, and then it opens up, and then there's a bowl. And then there's a piece that would go on top, a heavy piece of stone that was rounded off. And they'd put those olives in there, and then they would roll that stone. And you know what would happen to those olives? They would be crushed and they would be pressed that's where you get character is in the sufferings of life is in the hardships of life that's where a man gets stability that's where a man learns to stay with it that's where a man learns to follow Christ no matter what when all you have left is Christ and you're being crushed and pressed that's where you get character that's why we suffer But it's for our good. It turns us into men. It prepares us to fight the battle. Number three. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, 
The gospel involves birth and growth. Verse 9. It says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Do you see in verse 9 it says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling? When, when we come to Christ, uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus in, in, in uh, 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 John 3, he said, you must be, what? Born again. Do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? No, you don't. But just as you're born physically, you must be born again spiritually. So there is a moment in time, uh, and we talked about this. Many of us have a moment that we can identify. That was the moment we trusted Christ. We heard the gospel. Our eyes were opened. We said, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I believe you're the Savior. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. Come into my life. Take away my sin. Then we ask him to show us how to live. You see? So at that moment, we're born. We're born again. And so much of our efforts and so much of our uh, uh, emphasis is on people coming to Christ, is on people being saved from their sin. But that's just a part of it. That's just, from a human standpoint, that's just the beginning. Because when someone is born, then you want them to grow. And you want them to mature. And you want them to develop. The child doesn't develop. You take it to the doctor and they have the physical, and they're not developing according to the scale, there's some concern, and the doctor's going to watch. Bring them back in six months. They, they're, they're, there is growth. If there's birth, there should be growth. It's the evidence of life. So this is what the Father what does in our lives. You see, salvation is just not praying a prayer and, 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 and believing in Christ and being saved from our sins, and then that's it, and then we just go on our merry way doing what we were doing before. But see, now there is the impartation of life within you. What kind of life? Eternal life. You've been, you've been regenerated. And it says here in verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. You know what that means? It means as you walk with Christ, you get further and further and further away from the way you used to be. That's what it means. Look at um, Colossians 3.5. Flip over to the left. This is, called, uh, this is called sanctification. When we come to know Christ and, and, and spiritual life is imparted to us, that's justification. And our sins are totally wiped away. It's just as if we'd never sinned. That's what Christ has done for us in a moment. Our sins are completely blotted out. But now we are to be sanctified. Now we're to be set apart. We're to live unto him. Oh, and then there's a point where we're glorified. When we die... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're in his presence. Uh, Colossians. I get off on this other stuff. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's down the road. For consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. See, before we come to Christ, we're not dead to that stuff, we're alive to that stuff. Hey, let's party. What are you doing tonight? Let's party. What does that mean? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, it's idolatry. But see, no longer, no longer. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, but not anymore, when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. So you come to Christ, and within two to three weeks, this stuff should all be gone. This has been my experience. There was a teaching in Methodism called Sinless Perfectionism. And one time a lady came up to C.H. Spurgeon. She said, Mr. Spurgeon, I haven't sinned in 10 years. And he said, oh, you must be very proud. And she said, I am. (laughs) 
went right over her head. She never got it. <laughs> now, it doesn't go away in two or three weeks. You're going to be fighting this till the day you die. But we should be growing in grace. You should not be the jerk right now that you were three years ago. Right? And if you are the jerk, and even more of a jerk than when you were three years ago, you know what you ought to do? You ought to check out if you really know him. Because if you're not growing, you ought to ask, do I really know him? Have I been redeemed? Has there been a, a, a change in my life? Or do I just, have I just sort of bought into it? There's to be a heart change. There's to be a life change. And the Spirit of God is the one who's doing this in our lives. You can't produce this. But, but as, as, as you yield to him, and you say, Lord, I want to be your guy. I want to be your man. Are you going to get this right? Hey, do your kids get it right all the time? No. You teach them over and over again. Dog, God, how many times do I have to tell you? Well, you're going to have to tell them a whole bunch of times. Just like your dad had to tell you a whole bunch of times, and you still don't get it. And isn't it funny the things we're teaching our kids? We still don't do 100% right. We're all growing. We're all in process. God knows that. He's a merciful God. But that's where we're headed. That's our desire. That's our want to. And if there's no want to, then you better check your condition. I, I, I got to move. Uh, number four. Uh, the gospel, the good news, is staggering in its scope. What does that mean? Well, it's verse 9, back there, where he makes the statement. I want to get it exactly right. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You know what from all eternity means? Before the ages began. You know why you're a Christian? This is staggering. You want to know why you're a Christian? I had a guy one time write me this long letter uh, about why it was so important for water baptism. And water baptism is important. It's the first step in discipleship and following Christ. But he kept right. He, he was giving me this whole thing. He was letting me know because he'd heard me speak. He was very concerned because I was not teaching that in order to have your sins forgiven, you had to be baptized in water. If, you're not, if, you, if, you, if you are not baptized in water, you are not saved. So he's writing me this long letter, and I wrote him back and said, thank you very much for taking the time. And then I gave him some verses in response, and I basically said to him, I said, I would disagree with you that the basis of your salvation is water baptism. The basis of your salvation is the election and choosing of Almighty God before the foundations of the world. That's why you're a Christian. It does not depend on the man who runs or the man who wills, Romans 9 says, but on God who has mercy. Do you know that the reason you're a Christian is that before God created the world, before you existed, he chose you. Not because he looked ahead to see what you were going to do. Because all you do is screw up. That puts it on you. You're not the Savior. He's the Savior. The whole world was locked up in sin. And you know what he did before the foundation of the world? Read your Bible. Read Romans 9. And I don't like Romans 9. You ought to love it. You ought to love it and thank God for it. And say amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. You, ought to be, you, you should never get over the grace of God that he chose you before the foundation of the world. Well, why didn't he choose that? We don't know. I, I, I don't know. But that he chose me, there, there's no explanation that I can, it's just, it's just staggering, it's amazing. That's not right. Paul deals with that in Romans 9. It is right. The pottery doesn't say to the potter, hey, why'd you make me like this, pal? Why'd you make me into a bowl instead of a cup? You don't, that, you don't do that. Read Ephesians 1. It's, it's staggering. Just, when I say it's staggering, look, at, he chose you from before the foundations of the world. And then at a certain point, he brings you to Christ. So you're safe from your sin at a certain point. Why? Because before the foundations of the world, he chose you. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. My gosh, what a gift. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. 
And then it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Listen, before the foundation of the world, he chose you at a certain moment in time. Jesus said, All that the Father has given me will come. It's irresistible grace. And by the way, you would be an idiot to resist it. But you can't resist it. All that the Father has given me will come. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Those are the good works. So he cho- before the foundation, he chose you. And then at a certain moment in time, he brought you to Christ. And he saved you from your sin. But that's not all of it. You see, you see you're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Yeah, he saved you in evangelism and all that. Yeah, that's, that's really important. But see, that's the birth. But see, you're his workmanship. He's birthed you. And I'm drawing a blank because I'm looking at Lou. I got, I got five minutes. Thanks, Lou. I'm going to ignore it, but I got it. <laughs> we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's your whole life. That's your whole time in the earth. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before you were ever born that you might walk in them. This is, this is unbelievable. He's not only saved you. He chose you the moment you would come to him. And then you see he, he's doing all this work in your life and developing. You say, I'm still struggling with pornography and all this. That's part of the process. You know what? Guys who struggle with pornography can find victory. You can overcome that as you get with other brothers and all that. And then down the road, you can be ministering to guys as you're set free. The comfort you received in Christ, you share with those guys and they're set free. Those are good works. He's got planned for you. And you can't die until you do them. That's staggering, is it not? You can't die. Because he, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. This, hey, this is what you call good news. Would you not say, he's got a plan for you. Uh, Look at verse 9. According to his own purpose and grace. He's got a purpose, he's got a plan for your life. Does it involve suffering? Yeah, it does. But it's not all suffering. The suffering matures you. There's going to be some great stuff. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. What God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that staggering? Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. That's staggering. It's staggering. Is it not? You know, guys, the stuff we're dealing with right now, the crud we're dealing with right now, in the whole scheme of things, it's pretty dadgum small. Right? It's a temporary light affliction. Because he chose us and redeemed us, we're going to heaven, and we're not playing harps. We're going to rule and reign with him, and you say, well, what's it going to be like? It's going to be great. It's just going to be staggering. Here's number five. I got to know number five. I have to. Because th- this is really important. Number five. The gospel kills death and brings eternal life. Do you see there in... Verse 10, but now this gospel has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Hey, by the way, there's only one Savior. By the way, there's only one way to God. The world hates this. They hate it. There are many paths. There are many ways. There are many roads. No, there's not. There's one way. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. You know what that means? He's the only truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Allah cannot get you to God the Father. Buddha, Confucius, there's no way to God except through Christ. He's the only Savior. The only Savior. 
It is exclusive. It is not multicultural in terms of, oh, all religions are the same. No, they're not. But out of every nation, you know, after the gospel is preached to every nation, he's going to come. Okay. How did I get into that? Well, it's in the verse. That's how I got into it. <laughs> now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, watch this, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. This is why this preacher and teacher and apostle is in jail. He's going to die, and the sucker is not stressed out. This is why. Because Christ abolished death. What's he facing? They're going to come in here and cut me head off. What's that mean? Death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Flip over real quick to Hebrews. Look at what Christ did. Just go to your right. You'll find it. This, this is what the gospel does. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, actually 2, verse 14. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, meaning Jesus, that through, watch this, this is unbelievable, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, all this stuff, hey, all this stuff that's going on, Oh, we want to bail out. We want the economy, you know. We lose our job. We want this, you know. I want to make my car payment. You do a, They're trying to, you know what they're trying to do? They're, save, they're trying to save us from pain, from difficulty. The greatest pain, the greatest difficulty is death. And only Jesus can set you free from being a slave to the fear of death. He abolished it. He killed it. John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. He killed it. So if you believe in Christ, even though you die, yet shall you live. The moment you take your last breath is the greatest transition of your life. Because your next conscious thought will be in the presence of Christ. And all of your questions will be answered. Uh, about two years ago, I was doing a conference somewhere, and, I, and we opened it up for some questions, and a guy raised his hand, and he was struggling. He said, I had two sisters this year die of cancer. We were very, very close. And it was really, the guy broke up. He, he had tears in his eyes, and he said, I asked God to heal my sisters. I asked God to heal them. And, my, and he broke up, and he said, why did, not, why did God not heal my sisters? And I said to him, I said, may I ask you a question? He said, I said, did your sisters know Christ? And he said, yes. I said, he did heal them. He did heal them. Did he not heal them? Well, they died. Yes, they did, and he healed them. Do you dictate to God how he heals? Would your sisters want to come back? No. I, and and I, I, I needed, you got to be real gentle with someone in this condition, but you need to be very careful here that you're not dictating to God. He did heal them, just not in the way that you had planned. And see, even in your sorrow, that's great news because it's the gospel. We are the most blessed men on the face of the earth if you have never trusted Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins if you've never asked him to come into your life if you've never said Lord Jesus I believe that you're God and I believe that you exist and I believe that you rose from the dead I don't understand all this but I believe in you and I need you in my life would you come into my life he will and it's the greatest thing in all the world Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gospel, for the good news. Yeah, we got all this stuff going on, all this nonsense, all this foolishness around us. They're going to fix this. They're going to do this. You laugh. You just laugh, Psalm 2. You just look at these guys and you laugh. 
and you were working your plan. And I think of what Colossians says in the opening verses, that the gospel is constantly increasing and growing. All over the world, you're bringing people to know the Savior. All over the world, you're bringing them. You're bringing them to know him. Because they've trusted in those other things. They've trusted in government. They've trusted in rulers. They've trusted in this, and they trusted in that, and they were always disappointed. But they've come to trust in Christ. And this stuff is true, and it's real. And there's a power in it that sustains us even in the midst of suffering so that we don't break down and cut and run when we want to. It sustains us. For the guys who are really struggling and and, and discouraged, sustain them with the power of the Holy Spirit to stand fast at their appointed position and serve you. Because soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. In his name we pray, amen.